Tonight we have this topic, transgender women are women. Uh, We're using these Sunday nights to go through a series um, from a book called The Secular Creed. And this is one of the creeds that has crept its way quite rapidly into modern-day secular thinking. And we have the other creeds like Black Lives Matter, Women's Rights are Human's Rights, um, Love is Love. Uh, But this one, Transgender Women are Women, has, it felt like, popped up very quickly. Um, In 2017, Andrew Walker wrote a book called God and the Transgender Debate, and already within three or four years, he's had to rewrite the book and do an update on it because things have moved so quickly on this issue. In 2018, Maya Forstater, a tax specialist, lost her job when she questioned the change in British law that allowed people to change their sex on their birth certificate without a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. She tweeted, radically expanding the legal definition of women so that it can include both males and females made it a meaningless concept and would undermine women's rights and protections for vulnerable women and girls. As a result of that tweet, she lost her job. J.K. Rowling took this to a whole new level when in 2019 she found out about Maya's case that was going to court and tribunal And she tweeted this. Dress however you please. Call yourself whatever you like. Sleep with any consenting adult who'll have you. Live your best life in peace and security. But force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real? Hashtag I stand with Maya. Hashtag this is not a drill. J.K. Rowling, obviously much beloved author of Harry Potter and ensuing series, faced an online barrage of criticism and hatred because of this text. An ardent feminist who supported women's rights found herself on the backlash of the cancel culture. She was told by people that she was literally killing trans people with her hate. Things escalated further when Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, tweeted in opposition, transgender women are women, is what he tweeted in reply. This added fuel to the fire and has brought some of these issues to the mainstream. But what does that mean when Daniel Radcliffe says transgender women are women? Rebecca McLaughlin says, the answer might seem obvious. Radcliffe means that people who were born male but now identify as female should be treated as women in every respect. If transgender women are women, they should be allowed to use women's bathrooms, enter women's shelters and compete in women's sports. Anything less, so the logic runs, is transphobic and harmful. The logic seems compelling in the secular worldview. It's a justice issue. No one wants to harm people. None of us want to hate trans people. Instead, we want to sympathize with their concern. We want to stand for the oppressed and the vulnerable. No one of us would really want people to feel these terrible feelings and experience hatred and phobia and all those type of emotions. As we quoted last week, transgender 
person, Andrea Long Chu, said this is her experience of dysphoria. Gender dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like getting on an airplane to fly home only to realize mid-flight that this is it. You're going to spend the rest of your life on an airplane. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. Andrea wrote this as he was transitioning to be a male from being oh, from uh, from transitioning to be a female from a male in his gender appearance. He wrote of feeling more depressed and suicidal after taking hormones. But that even if the gender reassignment surgery doesn't provide happiness, surgery still should be made available. He says, there are no, there are no good outcomes in transition. There are only people begging to be taken seriously. That's a powerful line. Andrea is not arguing that this is a source of happiness, that this will fulfill their dreams. Andrew is arguing that their identity crisis should be taken seriously. And it's very important as Christians that we do indeed take people very seriously. This is no laughing matter, however absurd things may get. Every human being is made in the image of God. They're created by God, owned by God. And so we return to where we began last week and ask, what do we do in the face of these kind of situations? When signs like these appear, maybe not on our doorsteps or in our front yards, but in our email signatures, in our Twitter feeds, in our workplace culture, in our diversity statements... Rebecca McLaughlin helpfully outlines in her book that we have two temptations as Christians. We may want to pick up, or we have the temptation to pick up a hammer, either to grab that sign and place it in our front lawn, thinking, well, God is love and God is on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, so I ought to be too. Other Christians want to grab a hammer and tear down the sign, smash it up, because some of the things in there we cannot affirm and therefore we've got to get rid of it all. We actually remarked last week as a group that most of us feel we don't want to pick up a hammer or anything, we just want to leave it <laughs> and hope that it all just quietly goes away. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be on offer. And so in her book, she says, this book will offer a third approach, wielding a marker instead of a mallet. Examining each claim through the lens of Scripture and in line of culture will aim to disentangle ideas Christians can and must affirm from ideas Christians cannot and must not embrace. We need to pick up a marker instead of a mallet and be looking to edit and look at our culture critically from the lens of Scripture, the only infallible source of truth, to find out how do we interpret these things. We saw last week that every culture, because of God's common grace, has parts of, its, parts of its culture that obeys God's law and fulfills God's law and goes along with God's plan. But every culture has parts of God's law that it rejects or is ignorant of 
And this is a sign of God's common judgment on our nations. And so this week, we're going to tackle probably the most (laughs) flashpoint, touchpoint issue, the most sensitive and the most volatile of them all. Transgender women are women. How do we deal with this new (coughs) secular creed? Well, what I want us to do tonight is two things. We're going to deal with it biblically, and then we're going to deal with it practically. In the dealing with it biblically section, I'm going to give a short um, talk with some principles and ideas. Then we're going to have a time for you to discuss it as a crowd, whatever, uh, audience. Uh, And you can come up with questions you might want to ask. And then we're going to deal with it practically as well. And in that practical time, I've already got one question preloaded. Uh, But you can answer and ask... Oh, you can't answer. Um, I've got the mic. (laughs) You can ask whatever question. Although Matt did offer an answer halfway through mine last week. (laughs) So maybe Matt can answer, but everyone else. Uh, We'll deal with it practically. So let's think about it first, biblically. In some ways, we've arrived in this position as a culture because people have tried to argue for decades that biological sex and gender are different realities that we don't want to conflate our gender expression with biological reality, to enable, mainly from the feminist movement, to free up women to be able to do whatever they feel like they want to do. And so we can ask the question, what does woman mean? But if you start separating gender and biology, you get all tied up in a kind of mess. You see, if you say, well, okay... Obviously, there's some gender stereotypes that don't work. For instance, if you say, in my culture, long, uh, women have long hair, wear skirts, and paint one's face. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Well, tell that to William Wallace. Um, he, you know, long hair, wore a skirt, and painted his face, but was hardly a female. So what does woman mean if we don't have these stereotypes and if we split gender from biology, what do we do? Well, Rebecca McLaughlin says, feminists have been differentiating biological sex from cultural stereotypes, creating space for women to live as women in different ways. But if our bodies are removed from the equation, those stereotypes are actually all we have left. The sad and hard thing is that the feminists have overproven their case. They've made the split, but now they've created a vacuum. And in that vacuum, there's come the trans project, a thing that actually works against feminism and the heart of feminism, which is promoting biological women in society and in status and in all parts of the law. And so J.K. Rowling has come out and said this, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. So it gets rid of the actual same-sex movement as well. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. I agree, amen, uh, with J.K. Rowling. But the question is, what is the truth? That's the crucial issue. Matt Walsh, one of the people at the Daily Wire, has created a documentary, and now it's a book called What is a Woman? And it's a fascinating documentary. Um, it's, 
it's quite reasonable, it's not ridiculous. I haven't read the book, but I assume it's pretty much the same thing. And watch, as you watch this documentary, you see people tying themselves in knots. And, you know, that's partly the way the documentary is designed. And it ends with the punchline. He goes to his wife after asking all these professionals and all these doctors and all these people, what is a woman? No one answers him. And his wife just says, it's a female person. Okay, very simple. Now, that's the scientific answer. But that's not quite enough, because why should we care what science has to say? That's just science. What we need is a standard that is transcendent above anything that we can come up with. We need a standard that comes from the Bible itself. And so I want us to take a moment now to look at the truth of gender and sex according to Jesus. Jesus is a safe place to go because people seem to like Jesus no matter what end, but the when you actually read Jesus, he, he offends everyone, um, which is also kind of fun. So in Matthew chapter 19, there's this scenario where Jesus um, is put on the spot. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now they're trying to get around divorce, and and they're trying to put him in a difficult situation. But look at how Jesus answers. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In order to answer this tricky question about divorce that was trying to pin him in his culture, Jesus goes back to foundational principles. Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible. And in there, we read this in full. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus affirms the paradigm established in Genesis, that God is the creator of us and that he made us intrinsically male and female. There is a gender binary according to Jesus. And in fact, he then ties marriage to that gender binary and says that marriage, by definition, is between a male and a female. In our Sovereign Grace Church's statement of faith, as we rewrote our statement of faith for a new generation all the pastors decided that it would be beneficial to include in it some statements that helped us deal with some of these issues that we're dealing with now. And and I think that the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith really captures this issue very well. It says this in two sections. This is the section, Man's Creation in God's Image. God created man, male and female, in his own image, as the crown of creation and the object of his special care. God directly created Adam from the dust of the earth and Eve from Adam's side as the parents of the entire human race. They were created to know and glorify their maker by trusting in his goodness and obeying his word. God gave them dominion over all creation to fill, 
subdue and steward the earth as his representatives. All human beings are likewise made in the image of God. Despite the effects of the fall on sinful humanity, all people remain God's image bearers, capable of fellowship with him and possessing intrinsic dignity and value at every stage of life, from conception to death. Redemption in Christ progressively restores fallen men and women to their true humanity as they are conformed to the image of Christ. And it goes on to say this about male and female. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. Gender, designated by God through our biological sex, is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition. But it is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honoured and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. It's very helpful, isn't it? According to Jesus, our biological sex and our gender identity go hand in hand, even in a broken and fallen world. Our biological sex and our gender are part of God's good design not a result of the fall. Yes, each culture has different expressions of what is defined as masculine and feminine, but there is something deeper than those cultural expressions, something that's intrinsic in our actual design. Rebecca McLaughlin helpfully summarizes, Jesus affirms both the binary of male and female in creation and the binding of male to female in marriage in one move he solves two mysteries now let's go back to the story and see some more so jesus continues they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate they said to him why then did moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away he said to them because of your hardness of heart moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So they were taken aback by Jesus' teaching as well. And now look at what Jesus says in reply to that statement. Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. And that's very true in our culture, is it not? But only those to whom it is given. And then, very interestingly, he says this, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. You see, Jesus talks about this practice which no one seems to identify with 
It's not part of our culture as something that people want to identify as a eunuch, but a eunuch is someone who's had their genitals removed or castrated in some way so that they retain their male physicality or female physicality, but they've lost their sexual reproductive organs. In olden days, uh, often people who were slaves or servants of a king or a queen would become a eunuch so that they had no opportunity of sexual encounter or liaison. Uh, Sometimes in pagan cults, they would become eunuchs as a sign of devotion to God. In the Old Testament, eunuchs were not even allowed to enter the temple. But interestingly, in the New Testament, one of the first converts is an Ethiopian eunuch who meets Philip on a road while reading Isaiah, is converted, baptized, and welcomed into the New Testament church. But Jesus talks about this other category, this eunuchs from birth. And I think Jesus is probably referring to men and women who are unable, particularly probably men, unable to perform as normal men. Rebecca says this, Jesus affirmed the sex binary in creation. He also recognized that some people from birth are not equipped with standard issue sex organs. Our value as Christians is not tied to our reproductive ability, it's tied to Christ. You see, sin has distorted us. Sin has brought suffering into our world and even into our biological realities. So there are, Jesus recognizes, genuine biological problems that people have with their gender. For example, we know scientifically that a certain percentage of people, somewhere between 0.0017% and 1.7% of people, have what is called intersex, that their, their gender reproductive organs do not seem to align with their chromosomal makeup. Uh, there's, there's a disconnect there. We know anecdotally that there's people that experience these, like Andrea Long Chu, these disassociations from their body and their gender. That doesn't prove that gender is on a spectrum or that gender is fluid. It, It shows that we live in a fallen world, that this is not how it's meant to be. Jesus doesn't remove the gender binary because of the reality of eunuchs. He maintains it, but recognizes that the fall has distorted it. The answer is not to make gender fluid, uh, to say, well, for some people it's like a dimmer switch, you know, fully male, female, and we're somewhere in between. It's not to align our bodies with the ever-changing mental experience of someone struggling. That's, that's not what we're called to do. God is the designer and creator. And as an act of humility, we are called to submit to his design, promote his design, even if it feels uncomfortable, physically and psychologically. But you may wonder, but does, doesn't the Bible actually remove our gender? Perhaps you've read... Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 to 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Doesn't that remove the gender binary? Well, if you look at the entire argument, that's not what Paul's arguing. Paul's arguing that there's no status that gets you into the kingdom of God. There's nothing about you in your human position that 
can make you a Christian. The way we all become Christians is not by our Greek, her- our Jewish heritage or our Greek heritage or our freeness or our slaveness, our maleness or our femaleness. It's through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says there's, there's no more status in the church. Not that there's no more gender. If you read anything of Paul, you'll know that Paul believed in gender. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see that he recognized a distinction between husbands and wives uh, in various other places. What he's saying is that there's, there's no hierarchy in heaven. We're all equal through faith in Christ. But this does not obliterate God's good design. A good way to think about this is to think about how our biology and gender go together is to look forward to heaven. In heaven, there is no sin. The fall has been fulfilled in Christ and there will be no corruption in heaven. And we see that in heaven, Matthew 22 teaches that there is no marriage in heaven. However, there will be gender. The angels, you may notice, are male. But the best example of all this is that Jesus Christ himself is male in his resurrected, glorious body. Rebecca McLaughlin says, The promised resurrection of our male and female bodies is the ultimate proof that they are truly good in that they embody our true selves. You see, one of the things that happens is there's this desire when people lack their identity in Christ. They're trying to find their identity in so many other ways. And and when their identity doesn't match their gender and when their sexual preferences don't match, you know, what is expected of them and and all these things happen, people are looking for an identity. They're looking for where they fit. They're looking for their true self. But we find that in Christ, our, our true self is the self that God wants for us. So what alternative does Christianity, what alternative hope does Christianity offer to those who feel alienated from their bodies, like their true selves are not seen, like there is something deep within them that is out of joint in their flesh, it should say. What what hope can we actually give people that are struggling with this? Well, we we can groan with them. Romans 8, 22 to 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We can groan with people who are groaning in their fallen body and offer them a better hope than gender reassignment or puberty blocking or some kind of surgery that could ever uh, be offered. We can offer them the hope that comes in a new resurrected body that will be free from all groaning in the eternal heavenly kingdom. We all long for heaven, even if we experience no dysphoria here or gender incongruity We all ought to long for heaven in that resurrection of our bodies. And that's the type of hope that we can hold out to people. Let me quote at length to close a a section from the end of her chapter on this issue. Rebecca says, At the heart of Christianity is the horrific death and stunning resurrection 
of the one true image of the invisible God. Jesus was the perfect man, but he was no gender stereotype. He had the power to silence storms, command angels, and kill death. But his arms held babies, his hands healed the sick, and his words brought comfort to the weary, rejected, and weak. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings. Jesus longed to gather the children of Jerusalem to himself. To see God's kingdom, Jesus says, is to be born again. No follower of Jesus need hold to two rigid gender stereotypes in which men make skyscrapers and women decorate their walls. That was quoting a a ridiculous illustration she'd heard at a Christian conference once. Instead, we must cling to our Saviour. He is the one who knows us to our core and loves us to death and beyond. He made our bodies and he holds our heart. Our deepest identity lies in him. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God, Paul writes. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's our hope. For those who feel alienated from their sex, who feel like they can't get warm in their own bodies, no matter how many layers they put on, Jesus offers hope. Not the hope of a differently sexed body, but the hope of a new reality that no longer feels like labor pains. The transgender person I met with after my talk in England thanked me for treating these questions with tenderness. But Jesus' tenderness utterly surpasses ours. It's the tenderness of the God who likens his love to that of a nursing mother. We can trust our fragile bodies to this God, however out of joint with him we may feel, because he loves us with an everlasting love. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and make our groaning bodies anew. So there's some principles to think through. There's lots there. There's lots of different kind of roads. There's no one perfect answer. But what I want to give you a chance to do now is have a moment to process some of that. Um, That's all a bit in the conceptual realm. And then we're going to deal with it practically in Q&A time. So chat with the people around you. What stood out? What didn't you like? What did you disagree with? What did you agree with? What questions do you have? And then I'll, I'll um, put up my text number on the screen, and then you can text me, and we can go with some questions. So if you have any questions, please feel free to text them. It's currently no text, so I feel like it must have been a perfect talk. It was so unclear, no one knows what even to begin with. Um, if you want to take something through, otherwise, if you don't want to text, you just want to put your hand up, you can, you can do that. <laughs> See you, Rubes. <laughs> One of the questions from last week was, what do we do about pronouns? Um, and people's preferred pronouns and, and especially workplace context, but in um, family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you think that would be a good question to talk about now? I did talk about it in brief last week, but um, I did a bit more research on it. 
um, to think about it this week. And here's some principles. This comes from Andrew Walker, God and the Transgender Debate, um, his book, and he's got some blogs and he's redone some things. But some principles he begins with, which is firstly, um, and this is what we've been talking about, this is why we're doing these nights, love rejoices with truth. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Um, So to be truly loving biblically, we need to rejoice with truth. Um, We need to figure out what the truth is, and I think I've explained what the Bible would have to say in the simplest form about the gender, um, transgender position tonight. Um, And so as Christians, first and foremost, we ought to rejoice at the truth. And if people are experiencing this disquiet, we, we, and especially if they're Christians, we want to help them to come to a position, even if it's difficult, that they can rejoice with the truth. And we, we don't need to be ashamed of the truth. We certainly cannot, certainly cannot change the truth um, to conform to our culture. We rejoice with the truth. God's truth is the best, and we ought to embrace it in the bottom of our hearts. The second principle is to love your neighbor. It's the great command, love God, love neighbor. But Francis Beckwith says this about loving our neighbor. The golden rule is not about merely protecting your neighbor's preferences, but rather advancing your neighbor's good. This means that loving your neighbor may mean speaking something they will interpret as unloving. So it's not just protecting their preferences but advancing their good. Um, And that might mean speaking the truth. Principle number three, live at peace. Romans 12 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now this is important because the people that would probably align with us on the conservative side of gender can often be the least peaceable. And they can be really um, rude and, and just plain out. They, even Christians who I know, love and respect, they can just be rude about the whole situation and you know, have no respect for the dignity of the people or the struggle that they're experiencing. They make fun of the issue, but forget that there's real people behind these issues. And there's, there's crazy stuff that happens in our world, but it's coming from a crazy broken heart. And so we ought to live at peace. We're not seeking to create a circus or to create a furor, we want to live at peace as far as it depends on us. Now, truth speaking in this culture will not bring peace. It will bring division. But we've got to bring division with the truth, not with our jokes or our tropes or all these other things. Then some practicals. He says, if you can, avoid the, like I said last week, avoid the use of the pronouns. Um, If you can. So just call people by their name. Call yourself by your name. Use their preferred first name, even if it doesn't accord with what they look like. You know, there's guys whose names are Kelly, and there's women whose names are Kelly, so it doesn't really matter. Thirdly, though, he says, obey your conscience. And this is really important because we don't want to wound our conscience. What that means is our conscience is our God-given ability to determine what is right and wrong. It's got to be informed biblically, so the Bible informs our conscience. Uh, But if you feel in your circumstance that to say someone is a man that's not a man, you think that actually that's what the Bible teaches, then no matter what pressure comes against you, 
The Bible says it's wrong for you to go against your conscience. It's neither safe nor right, uh, Martin Luther said. And you can read more about that um, in Romans and in various places. He's fine. Uh, number four, he says, be honest in public. So that's why you know, when I'm quoting a transgender person, I'll quote them by their actual pronoun that accords with their biological sex. Um, because even though they would prefer me not to do that, um, I believe that my role and my conscience would say, I- I'm going to call a male a him, um, and I'm, that's just what I'm going to do. Uh, I think it's, it's important to stand for truth publicly. He says, in a family situation, if you had a close family member identify as transgender, do all these steps, require first name, um, and require or seek to request to call them by their gender pronoun because of your closeness in relationship and closeness in influence. Attempt as best you can as your first port of call to call a man a, a male and a him and a female likewise. Um, it's, it's, we have the greatest responsibility to those who are closest to us and we ought not to aid and abet someone's unfortunate, um, you know, gender disassociation. You may be the only person remaining in their life um, that will speak the truth to them, and you never know what the Lord will do with it. He says with co-workers, it gets trickier. Um, Many individuals are not looking to enter the fray in their workplaces. They just want to do their jobs, provide for their families, and live their lives. This is where each person in the workplace has to evaluate their context and the relationship with their co-worker. In general, here is my principle. Nearness means clarity. Think of a concentric circle. How someone will choose to refer to a colleague will, de- colleague will depend on the depth of the relationship. If you have a transgender co-worker in the same department who you are hardly ever see or talk to, you lack the relational capital and depth to speak truthfully into that person's life. Some Christian consciences may have no problem calling a person they do not know by their desired name or pronoun, and I do not begrudge them for thinking this way if they're removed from the person and not in a context that makes authentic relationship building possible. While not avoiding the person, it is wise to evade circumstances that will put you in a position to violate your conscience. One important caveat, especially relevant to corporate settings, is the expectation that employers sign, employees sign statements to the effect signalling their agreement with a company's diversity compliance standards, which may include invasive policies related to transgenderism such as pronouns. Brothers and sisters, if this is you, you need to evaluate your conscience. If you find yourself in a setting where your employer is requiring you to violate your conscience as a condition of your employment, let me be as clear as possible. You need to be forthright with your employer. Ask for an exception. If it won't be given, it might be time to find a new place of employment. None of this is easy, but Jesus never promised that following him would be would be without great personal cost. In fact, he said just the opposite. He foretold it. Christ also promised that taking up the cross at great cost to ourselves is the pathway to find a greater, to finding greater union with him. And that leads to his final point, pay the price. I often get asked questions about various vocations where dilemmas like pronoun usage are likely to arise. Most assume there's an easy resolution available. Increasingly, I find myself saying to people, there's not. So be prepared to pay the consequences for honoring your conscience and scripture. 
It's very sobering, isn't it? It's going to be very difficult in some of our jobs and some of our vocations to actually maintain the truth, but that's what we're called to do. People want neat solutions. We probably want a neat solution that says, oh, this is what you do to solve this problem. But he's finding more and more that there are no neat solutions. He says, I wish I had better answers, but the direction of culture, law, and government policy is making satisfactory resolution more and more difficult. What I do know is that Christians should seek guidance from mature Christians and from their pastors. Regardless of the circumstances, the task of the Christian in society remains the same. Love God, love your neighbor, promote the truth of how God's design is best for us and our neighbors. I think we do have to be ready to pay the price. Now, each one of us needs to have our own conscience informed by the word of God. And we also need to deal peaceably with one another. So if we differ on what that answer looks like, um, we've also got to be prepared to have good loving Christian dialogue about it. Um, If you want more context in your specific situation, I'd love to talk to you about it and help you think it through. I can't guarantee I'll give you a neat solution or one that won't result in a negative employment outcome. Uh, But Christ never called us to that. He called us to take up our cross, and that might mean even in our workplace. And I can't protect you from that. It's not my job as a pastor. My job is to help you live out the truth Um, And whatever comes, comes. So there's some thoughts about what we do. We, We seek to speak the truth. We seek to love the truth. We seek to love people. And then we've got to figure out how we're going to do that in our various contexts. uh, And we've got to be prepared to pay the price. Okay, here's a couple more questions. According to the Bible, is biological difference the only difference between men and women... Or are there other distinctions, personality, etc.? Great question. So is it just biological or is, it, is there something more? Uh, and I would say, yeah, there's something more. If you read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you get the archetype and the formation of how God designed the world. And you'll see that there's something distinct about maleness, which is different to femaleness. God establishes roles for men and women uh, and then... And it plays out in the, in the pre-fall and the fall condition. So men are primarily called to take responsibility. So God creates man and woman equal, gives them both the charge to rule the world. But in Genesis 2, God puts man in the garden first and gives him charge of the garden. Says he's meant to work and keep the garden. Then God says, it's not good that man should be alone. He needs a helper. So God creates a helper, or he brings all the animals before Adam, and Adam says, none of these are going to work, creates a woman uh, to be a helper for him. And the woman's role as a helper, it's not this subservient role, but it is different. Uh, Adam's responsibility is to take care of the garden, and Eve's responsibility is to help him do that. Uh, and so at the heart of masculinity is responsibility, and at the heart of femininity is a willing disposition to help men to be oriented toward particularly their husband, uh, but to nurture and strengthen godly male leadership in their lives. And we see that Satan then goes after Eve, not Adam first. She distorts the created order. Eve sins, Adam's involved. And then who does God go after? Goes after Adam because he's responsible. Then how does God curse Eve? He curses her childbearing. 
and her relationship with her husband, that she would want to rule over him. Um, but then, and, and so that's, so we see that God curses, you know, these different parts of our thing. So I think there are intrinsic parts about our humanity that are tied up with our role as males and our role as females that aren't just about marriage, that are actually all of the world, all of creation. But once you start getting into the particulars of hair and dress and sport and jobs, the Bible doesn't, you know, well, sometimes it does go there, but not in the same ways that we think. So, But at the archetypal level, and I pull that from John Piper and Wayne Grudem in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, men are called to take responsibility and women are called to have an affirming disposition toward godly male leadership at their heart. And that's that's the role. Uh, the next question that came through was, how do you communicate with someone on the issue who feels their truth is equal to the truth? Someone that argues the feelings don't care about your facts. Yeah, so that's playing off the idea from that Matt Walsh and the, new, the Daily Wire guys that facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, and then the flip side is, well, my feelings don't care about your facts. This is how I feel. Uh, and that comes down to what we were talking about last week, that we, we live in an era where the self um, has become its own identity, where we don't receive our identity from our culture or from God. We create it internally. We expressive individualism. Uh, and so people feel like their truth is their truth. They feel like their identity is their identity. How do you communicate with someone like that? I think it's very, very difficult. I think what you've got to recognize is that if someone is that subjective, that you share basically no foundation upon which you can have a rational, logical conversation. Uh, because in a sense, by doing so, they've, they've thrown out rationality because they're completely subjective. Um, and so whatever their truth is their truth, now, what you can do in a loving and gentle way is help them take them to the end point of their worldview. So you take their subjectivism and gently you ask questions until it unravels. So, you know, if this is how you feel and you think that's right for you because of how you feel, what if someone were to feel like this and this is how they felt? Would you say that it's right or wrong? Oh, you know, say, you know, whatever the issue, I won't go into. And they go, well, that's wrong. Well, how, how could you say that the way you feel is right and the way they feel is wrong? Well, well, that's my choice. And, well, what about, you know, I'm not hurting anyone with my views. Well, okay, well, that's, you know, that's, that's your particular perspective. But they would say I'm not hurting anyone either because I don't believe in human value. And so, and you can try and take them within their framework to the truth by showing how their framework has no foundation. And then you try and bring them back and say, well, if, if we keep going down your line, we'll end up in a place where you wouldn't even want to go, would you? Can I tell you my view? Can I tell you how, you know, I subscribe to what God has said in the Bible, and you may not agree with it, but this is an unchanging book that you know, has a foundation, and this is where I get everything from. And Maybe we can read it and talk about it together um, if you'd like to. 
and maybe you could go down there. But you've got to recognize at the outset that you're here and they're there and there's a massive, massive gap between the two and you're going to have a very frustrating conversation if you try and use the principles that you use to make a decision and expect them to make the same kind of principled, reasonable, rational thing because they're coming from a subjectivist worldview. Um, and so it's just going to be, you just got to recognize that gulf is there and love and, and hope and pray that God will somehow help you bridge the gap. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I'm quoting J.K. Rowling as sort of like a co-belligerent. So she affirms some of the things that I affirm, but I don't agree with everything she would agree with. So how would I respond to J.K. Rowling? Um, in a similar way, I'd be like, well, we, you know, we share similar views, but how did you arrive at, at those views that women have any value or that women should have this status in society? And again, asking the questions, and eventually she's going to get to the point where she either, she's going to have to say, well, it's just what I believe. It's just what I want to be true. Um, or she's going to say, well, it's our human rights. But where do you get the human rights from? Where, where does it all come from? And you have to keep getting people back to the end, the, the transcendental principle. And then you can say, well, this, this is my transcendental principle. Which one do you think stacks up better as creating a just and equitable society? Um, and I say, I, I, think, I think what God has to say creates a better world. Uh, and it works better because your one has parts of it that are true, but they're only applicable to everyone if something else is true. But based on your own worldview, you can't arrive at the dignity of human beings because there's no outside view that could give them you know, dignity. Um, for women, for unborn, for whatever, whatever it is. So, does that answer something like that? Yeah. 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 So she's coming from she's borrowing from Christianity without realizing it. Whereas the Radcliffe position is just so it's it's not even borrowing from Christianity, other than maybe this kind of sense that we should care for people. Um, who are oppressed or vulnerable or struggling, which is maybe a feeling that they've brought over from Christianity, but devoid of any definition of what true care or love is. Um, it's amazing when you study all this stuff, you realize just actually the Bible, the Bible is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And without the Bible as the foundation, we can run on the ether of the Bible for a time as a society, but eventually it will all implode and destroy because it can't work without the actual foundation itself. Like um, Rebecca Lockwood said last week, it's a sinkhole. You remove the scriptures and you don't find the secular paradise. You actually re- you find an abyss. Um, and so the more we can bring people back... And a good, a good resource for that is Tim Keller has a podcast called uh, Questioning Christianity. And uh, that one is a masterclass in, in him doing all of that stuff that I did just then. It's just him going, okay, meaning. How do we arrive at meaning? Well, here's you know, three different ways that people do it in society. But, you know, and here's the one, the way the Bible does it, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, the resources in the Christian faith deal with it. And it's all at that meta-apologetic level, but it's, it's very helpful. So if you want a good model of how to do this in a winsome, intellectual, long-form way, or you want to listen to something with someone and say, hey, look, this is how I think... 
listen to this and then let's talk about it. You don't have to agree with it, but let's talk about it because at least he can say it better than I could ever say it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, a, that's a way of doing it. Any other questions on this one? I think they're quite, I mean, I don't think he's transphobic, but I, I, think, I think they could tell that they're in a trap in that documentary. Um, but they'll call, you know, it, it's a great weapon to say, well, you're being phobic of whatever it is, um, because it immediately shuts down you as a person and everything you have to say. Um, I, I think the best way, first of all, is to not actually be transphobic um, in your own heart so that you know that in the depth of your being, you, you don't fear trans people or hate them. In fact, the opposite, you love them. Um, and then you need to know that you're actually loving them and you need to be on the solid ground of Scripture going, even though you feel like this is hate and harm, this is actually love. Um, how do you deal if someone calls you transphobic? I, I think you would just absorb it most of the time and not reply um, because I, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. If, if someone's going there... They're, they're at 100, and, you, you, you know, Jesus got insulted a lot, and he didn't reply every time, and I would probably just absorb it and be like, I'm sorry you think that way. I don't believe that's the truth, but I'm sorry that you think that way, and that's, that's probably what I do in the first instance. If you're in a long-form relationship with someone, if it's a true relationship, hopefully you can actually have a conversation where you, can I explain to you why I don't believe I'm being... Like hating you or transphobic, and would you would you let me talk about that? And if they won't, then I don't know what else you can do. Yeah. 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 I think that you would... That's why we've got to prepare ourselves. So we're coming into those moments as best we can, knowing image of God, image of God, image of God, dignity, value, worth... This is a human being created eternally by God that he made um, and reform, you know, renewing your mind as much as you can in that moment. I think that it is genuinely good to be revolted in a way at things that are revolting. Um, to, to not call evil good um, is, is the right thing to do. I think that's why we need to walk in the spirit and, and ask the Lord in those moments, like, what, how do you want me to react right now? Um, and testing whether or not 
we have self-righteousness in our heart. It's like, oh, I'm not like you or I'm better than you or I don't struggle with those struggles, so why don't you just get it together? Or, Isn't this ridiculous? Or things like that. So doing a lot of heart work first. And I think for all of us, we need to do this because it's only a matter of time before you're in a situation where you're going to be face-to-face with some very uncomfortable, perhaps for you, situation. Some of us are going to naturally just be far more at ease with this. Just like, oh, hi, welcome, nice to meet you. And it's almost like water off a duck's back. Some of us are going to be like, okay, (laughs) I'm going to need a moment. Uh, And so I think we've got to do, if you are down that um, end, I think you probably just need to know, know thyself and prepare your heart and ask for prayer and probably do a bit more work knowing that you're likely to come against it. Um, say if you were going to go work, if you were going to go work in King's Cross, whatever you like, you know you're going to see prostitutes and trans and all that, and so you would prepare yourself. You're like, okay, this is not going to be a shock. I think more and more we need to be prepared that this is going to be around. Um, I know for some of us, it's in our workplaces. It, it, it's there already, and so we've got to do the work to be prepared for it. I'm not sure I've done that work, um, but I think that would be good. There's some thoughts. Any other last questions people would like to... It is 10 past 7, so we probably should. Let me pray and and end our time. If you want to hang around and ask questions privately one-to-one, I'll be here. Thank you very much. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word that we have solid foundation to stand on. And we don't come into this world with any pride because anything we know of the truth was revealed to us. We were ignorant of it. We thank you for your grace that you revealed your word to us. Help us to live in this confusing and dark time. Um, Help us to live with joy and peace and love and light and truth. Amen. Thank you, friends. Next week, I'll take votes on whatever we want the last one to be. So... (laughs) First in best dress, maybe. We'll see. Thank you, friends.